put put the enemies of Christ under his feet, triumph over them in him. Halloween is footstooling Samhain. It is. It literally is. It literally, it literally is. is. That's the sound bite right there. <laughs> That's the sound bite That's right the there. Sound bite. This week's edition of the Sword and Staff. I'm one of your hosts, Josh Robinson. And joining me today, as always, is my co-host, Sketchy Richie. And on today's episode of the Sword and Staff, Sketchy Richie and I are going to be getting <laughs> into... Sketchy Richie and I. You introduced yourself that way. There we go. It's the... it's, it's sticks now. There we go. Uh, we're going to be talking <clears throat> about the topic of Halloween. And so I have been preparing for this for a long, long time now. Uh, to really expand on the conversation that we had last year. Richie, do you remember that episode? The last probably two years. Yeah. I think it started off with an article. And it then did we done the year a, before. Yeah, and then we done a, an episode, and then now this is the third strike at it. Yes, it is. And so <clears throat> ought to be a whole lot of fun. We hope that you guys are excited for this week's edition. And uh, if you've got any questions about Halloween... This is probably going to become your new go-to source. And so we're going to talk about some of the things we talked about last year in last year's episode. But we're going to expand on that. We've got a lot of new things to talk about. And let me go ahead and direct you back to an episode. If you have not listened to our episode on the fairy gods of Ireland, you need to go back and listen to that episode in order to have the appropriate background to understand this episode. Yep. And the reason why is we're going to be touching on an ancient pagan uh, hol- holiday or holy day or festival called Samhain or Samhain. Depends on, uh, I've heard, heard it pronounced yeah. different ways. <clears throat> um, and so well, for people y- around here calling it Samhain. Yeah, it's definitely not pr- pronounced <laughs> Samhain. Samhain. Um, sorry, Glenn Danzig. It's not, it's not pronounced Samhain. Uh, it's Samhain or Just Samhain. Just broke all the people's hearts that watch Trick or Treat with little yep. Samhain. Yep, yep. So, um, But in order to understand what we're going to talk about, you need to understand the mythology of Ireland. Because this is a a festival and holy day that is grounded in the Irish mythos. Um, There is the whole, it is a a practical outworking of that worldview. Um, So go back, listen to that episode. But if uh, you're the kind of person who just wants the Cliff Note version, we're going to kind of give a Cliff Notes version of it to start off today's episode. But before we do that, Richie. We just dropped a new trailer today. We did. So do you want to tell the people about that? The first teaser trailer for our new project, Shadow Appalachia, Mm -hmm. just dropped today. Yes, it did. And it's already got about 100, well, no, it's about between all the places that we've released, it's got about a thousand views. Yep. Um, We've released it on Instagram, we've released it on Facebook, we've dropped it in our Discord, we've dropped it on YouTube on three different channels on the Shadow Appalachia trailer or uh, Shadow Appalachia channel, the Dark Holler channel, and the Sword and Staff channel. So it's available in all those places. If you haven't watched it yet, and if you haven't watched it yet, then what, what are you waiting for? Exactly. Um, Richie, do you want to kind of give a snippet about what 
what Shadow Appalachia is going to be. And about. we just premiered a the first behind the scenes video. Oh, yeah. So that's so. Yeah, yeah, that literally just happened. Yep. I just now dropped that in our discord and I dropped it on the Facebook group. So for those who are interested in that. Um, it's called Providentially Hindered. Yep. A little foreshadowing for what we're getting into next weekend. Yep. Um, so I don't know if you want to expand on any of that and tell people what Shadow Appalachia is going to be about. We recorded a video on Sunday yep. after church, kind of as a little kind of soundbite, kind of giving an overview of what Shadow Appalachia is about. Do you want to tell people about that while we've got their attention? Uh, yeah. Shadow Appalachia really picks, off, picks up where we left off with Dark Holler. In Dark Holler, we zoomed in on a particular story with Kristen and her exorcism. Yep. And as Dark Holler goes along, you start to see a zoom out to to episode five to where we're actually talking about the principalities of Appalachia and the phenomena in general around here and window areas and all that. But Shadow Appalachia stems off from that and we go and we profile High Strangeness in Appalachia, all the famous cases you know and love, Mothman, Flatwoods Monster, Mamie Thurman, Devil Dogs, Bigfoot, UFO cases, through a distinctly Christian lens and perspective. Yeah. In a way that I don't think a lot of people yeah. are even ready for yet. And kind of tying it all together into a kind of unified theory. Yep. Showing how actually, how all of these things that seem to be disconnected, paranormal phenomena or folklore yes or local mythology sort of isolated incidents what it would seem how how it actually all connects together in a unified way um so i don't i'm not aware of anything else that's going to address this in the way that we are not in our wheelhouse no the only thing out there that sort of is in the same vein Mm -hmm. thematically is hellier yeah and this sort of challenges their narrative Sort of toe-to-toe on everything, like yeah. their conclusions. Like, we're, we're, we're discussing the same patterns, the same phenomena, but completely different sides of the coin on this thing. So, yeah, the trailer for that is out, and we'll probably release another one before the holidays. I know after this next expedition we're doing, the, there's talk about crafting another trailer for it yeah. before the holidays. Good so, deal. Well, if you guys are interested in that, head on over to our YouTube channel or all of the Sword and Staff outlets that are out there on social media. You should be able to find it. And yep. also, make sure to uh, to subscribe to our channels because we're going to be using YouTube a lot more in the future because we're going to be dropping all this content on there. Yep. <clears throat> um, so make sure that you're subscribed. Make sure that you have notifications turned on. That way that you can be updated whenever you that can stuff absolutely drops. expect some behind the scenes videos, some vlogs, some funny takes yeah whatever we get into this next coming weekend because ward will be down for the whole weekend we're getting a hotel we're going to be camped out in the middle of high strangeness so that's going to be the focus for the entire weekend so well good deal we'll get into some good stuff well good deal all right so let's get into this week's episode and richie before we jump in tell me how are you feeling about this conversation I'm excited to tell the folks at home how to build bonfires oh and gosh. do rituals with their children for the holidays. All right. Well, I expected nothing less. I I asked for that. Happy right? Samhain, everybody out there. I, I asked for that. You asked for that one. I mean, did you <laughs> really expect anything else? I should have known better. Um, so, uh, well, let's go ahead and dive in before you say something <laughs> else that's sketchy. Um, so let's start off. Let's pick up where we left off okay. in the Fairy Gods of Ireland. Yep. Okay. <clears throat> so in that episode, 
we discussed the seven takings of Ireland, which yes. is what the Book of Invasions is about. It is a mytho-historical retelling of the founding of the land of Ireland, right? And we learned about some beings there, right? We, we learned about various different kinds of people, right? We learned about uh, Kazare, who was the, the uh, granddaughter of Noah. And uh, she comes. <laughs> my to, mind just went. <laughs> my mind jumped to a down the rabbit hole. I said, "It's the great stepniece of Moses." <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> not too far off. Not too far off, but not the granddaughter off. of Noah. So uh, she she's the first person, her and her crew, uh, to come in to settle the land of Ireland. Yeah. And then the flood comes, wipes them out, except for Finn. Finn. Uh, oh gosh, what was his name? Oh, Salmon Boy. Yeah, I about called him Finrod. That's yeah. Lord of the Rings. Uh, We're traumatized. Fintan. Fintan. Yeah. He turns into a salmon, as one does, as one does, to escape the, the deluge. Right. Yep. And then after that, uh, there's there's various other groups of people who come into the island. Um, but while we're there, we we learn about these supernatural beings that are there as well, right? And uh, the ones in particular that I want to focus in on for the majority of this episode is the Fomorians. Now, do you remember the Fomorians? Yes. Okay. For those of you who don't recall the Fomorians, go back and listen to the episode. We talk about them at length. But they are these sea giants who are kind of presented to these as these spiritual beings who come yeah, from... These Atlantean Nephilim giants. There we go. If you want more on that, go see the last episode that we talked about this <laughs> in. Um, I'm not going to rehash all that here. But um, they're these group of giants from the sea who impose harsh tributes upon all who are in the land. Right? And then they go to war with this other supernatural group called the Tua de Danon, or the Tuatha de Danon, however you want to pronounce it in Ireland. It's the Tua de Danon. Um, but, but they're kind of depicted as these angelic beings. Yep. Right? They come down from the sky. They bring knowledge of various things, right? Like... Um, as aliens do today. As aliens and uh, uh, fallen angels do. Um, and uh, they go to war with the Fomorians. And there's this interaction between them. And there's treaties b- between them and, and you know and all that. And um, and then after that, uh, after the, the Tua de Danon, uh, there's another group that comes in. They defeat the Tua de Danon. And then the Tua de Danon kind of become what we know today as the Fae yep. or the fairies, right? They they yep. they make the treaty with the people who are now the ancestors of uh, the modern Ar- Irish, and uh, they take the land above, and they take the world below in the fairy mounds, and they become the Fae, right? And in this particular worldview, um, you have uh, this belief that the fae is kind of behind all of the natural things out there, right? Like when the leaves fall from the trees, you can't see them unless you have second sight. Um, if you're, if you've, as re- some do, if you've read uh, Robert Kirk, who is a minister, his uh, the Secret Commonwealth of. Uh, as I was telling you the other day, Perry we need Fons. to do an episode of the, on that. Yeah, on second sight, clairvoyance, things like that. Yeah, actually, uh, I have here in front of us. The Secret Commonwealth of Elves, Fawns, and Fairies by Robert Kirk. And uh, there's actually, at the beginning of it, um, a introduction on page 22 about Second Sight and telepathy. 
So uh, there's actually a side in there. But uh, I mean, you communicate with aliens telepathically. You communicate with the Fae telepathically. It's a thing. Well, uh, here's a little fo- uh, a little piece for our reformed friends out there. Um, just so it there's might any of those your, still left, so that there might uh, it might pique your interest. It is interesting to learn that the Presbyterian seers justified their visions out I of the Bible. I have a new title. What? A Presbyterian seer. That's me. Well, so apparently the, there were Presbyterians out there that had second sight and That's was me. able to see Faye. Um, so, get uh, Robert Kirk's The Secret Commonwealth of Elves, Fawns, and Fairies, because it talks about this. But, um, but you know, we, we read from, um, from Yeats, the, the Irish poet, and he talks about that the, the Tuatha de Danon or the Tuatha de Danon were fallen angels and that they are the fairies. So basically, fairy or fae is just another name, a cultural name given to the fallen angels. Well, I mean, you, we saw uh, in the stories of St. Columba fighting like the Loch Ness Monster. Right. Like there were villagers on the, on the thing, on the landscape there that didn't see the monster. They just saw St. Columba. Out there on the water. Like doing an exorcism is what it looked like on the yeah, water. But right. to him and to others that could see these things, he was going toe-to-toe with the Loch Ness Monster. Yeah, right. so very similar very similar um and he talks about that like uh if you were to see a whirlwind you know blowing uh you know the hay and stuff like that this is yates saying this yeah um one person might just see the wind rolling through and another person might see the fairies in a scuffle causing that to be and i don't know that that sounds weird but this is actually grounded in the christian worldview um in the christian tradition the name given to these beings isn't necessarily fae or fairies. That's just a cultural name the Irish give them yep. um, and people over there in that region. Um, but it's it's the virtues um, or elemental spirits. These are angelic beings who fall in the second choir of the angelic hierarchy who God has delegated the government of the natural elements to. Right. So when the wind blows or when the leaves fall from the trees, right, um, that's these certain angelic beings exercising the dominion that God has given them. And even zoomed out from that, even on a cosmic scale, the the movement of planets, the orbits of planets, the spinning of the cosmos, that's all tied to the virtues. Right. And that's, you know, if you go and if you read Dante and his Paradiso, um, or you read C.S. Lewis's The Discarded Image. They associated angels with the planets. Yep. So you literally have virtues heavens. carrying leaves to the ground and literally pulling planets around their stars. Yeah. So, I mean... It's, it's the angels who yep. who make the planets spin and circle in their orbits and those kind of things. That is very grounded in the Christian tradition. Yep. And that may come as a shock to some of you. Um, but that's how a sovereign God works. He delegates things off to his created beings because that's how he's chosen to do things. Honestly, I think if the church could just shake off the image of the the chubby babies on clouds with wings. Yes. Take on angels. This would be be just common sense like second nature absolutely not second sight second Second sight and second nature yeah um so um so here's kind of how it goes okay so there is this um the celts and the irish they have a liturgical cycle as all cultures do yep um and it's kind of divided up among the solstices and equinoxes okay so think of it this way: uh, the uh, the equinoxes is when the days, uh, the day and night become equal. Yep. Right. 
Um, and then, you know, in between those and the solstices, the, you know, the days are going to get shorter, they're going to get longer, that kind of stuff, right? Mm, yeah. um, and in between the equinoxes and the solstices, there are four other holidays or holy days or liturgical festivals or whatever you want to call them, okay? And one of them is called Samhain or Samhain, not Samehan. Um, <laughs> I just want to drive that home a little further, Okay. And so here's kind of the thought, all right? This happens after the autumn equinox, in between the autumn equinox and the winter solstice, okay? So it's the dark part of the year, Yep. right? It's this, and it's this point of liminality yep. that's in between <clears throat> the days being equal, day and night, and the days growing darker, yep. okay? And so basically what the thought is, is this is the time of the year when the, dark, the darkness is coming in, right? Um, and this, this is, is the throes of summer literally on its last breath. So this is right. the end of the life and the bright essence of spring and summer mm-hmm. and going into the death month of the death months of winter. That's right. Yeah. And as this is occurring, um, it's harvest season, right? Yep. So things are beginning to die. Like you're talking about the trees are beginning to die. And so the thought was, is that the veil between the seen and the unseen was thin. At this point, now I don't want to get too much into the metaphysics of the the thinning veil, but it's I mean, actually why not? well, it's actually based in observation. Yep. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure this out. You don't need a huge metaphysical le- lecture to figure out how this works. Just go outside and assume this this worldview, right? That fairies and supernatural beings are over the elements. Okay. Yep. If you walk out in the fall, like right now in my yard, um, you see that there are a ton of leaves falling to the ground now. And the leaves are changing colors and things are beginning to die and the weather's beginning to become cold, right? If you associate those things, the elements, with supernatural beings like the Fae, now you, you're going to draw the conclusion, oh my goodness, like they're really hard at work right now. Yep. Right? Like they are, like the, the leaves are turning, they're falling, things are dying, it's getting cold. Um, I can see my breath in the mornings, right? Yep. Um, <clears throat> So that leads you to conclude, oh my goodness, well, since they're so active right now, that must mean that the veil between the, the seen and the unseen world, it, it must be really thin or something right now, yeah. because they're very, very active, right? Now, this thinning veil um, has some repercussions, right? So let's think about it. So we talked about the Fomorians, okay? And with the thinning veil, like it, in uh, paganism, it only begins with Samhain, and it continues on through mm-hmm. Yule, which is right. the darkest day of the year. Mm-hmm. So you see that they believe that the sun would illuminate the shadows and keep the evil spirits at bay. Mm-hmm. And as the sun's power sort of weakens as it gets into the fall and the winter months, it loses its hold and its sway on the unclean spirits, on the evil spirits. Mm-hmm. And Samhain really marks the opening of the door to the time that's ruled by the moon, when the spirits literally wander the earth so right so that's exactly where we're at right so this veil's thin and so guess what that means that means that you're going to have more interaction with these beings from the unseen realm just as the light and the warmth dies Mm -hmm. and the darkness comes in the the beings who reside in the other the other side of the veil they're able to come out yep and not only are they able to come out but they're also able to take you back in Absolutely. Right. And that gets into things like fair, like fae abductions and stuff like that. 
Um, but we won't get too much into that right now. Um, so look into the majority of UFO abduction cases yeah. and fay abduction cases, mm-hmm. and you'll see that it's in the fall and the winter months. We'll just watch uh, Missing 411. Yep. There you go. Um, so there is a liturgical cycle and a liturgical holiday in Celtic culture to deal with this problem, right? The thinning veil. And that is Samhain or Samhain. Richie, you used to be a pagan. Yes. Do you want to talk about Samhain a little bit and maybe talk about some of the practices that was used whenever you were practicing that? Oh, gosh. Uh, Samhain was basically a survival festival mm-hmm. when, it, when it came to paganism. Like, as you had the light and the protection of, of the spring and the summer, and it sort of kept the, the fae sort of occupied with nature. Like, there was plenty of life in the forest. They weren't too interested in you, so you didn't have to worry about them as much but right. as the life dies in the forest and life begins to retreat back into the homes like that's where the light and the warmth is now is in your own home so the fae and the elemental spirits would take notice of you your family mm-hmm. your household and they would begin to encroach on your space so yeah. Samhain you would literally protect yourself from the evil spirits so you would don masks and build bonfires and Dress your children up like the elemental spirits just mm-hmm. to blend in during this time. Yeah. Leave offerings, things yeah. like that. Did you used to do things like that? I did. Yeah? I had an end-of-season uh, offering where we would take uh, the first sort of fruits of the, the harvest yep. and leave it at the forest lawn to reestablish the boundaries. Okay, like, this is, this is our space. This is your space. Yep. Here's an offering of half of what we have. Mm-hmm. It's equal. But we done that, and then we done uh, a harvest dinner. We done uh, like a bonfire. We done all the traditional things for Samhain, like the dressing up, the the mass, the ritual, the rituals, the sigils, thing to keep out you know, evil spirits. And it was a continual effort from Samhain through Yule, and it culminated with the burning of the Yule log. And sort of the next day after Yule is over, you have the power of the sun returning. And every day after yeah, Yule, the days, get, the days longer. get longer and the light grows. Until you get to the spring equinox. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So you, t- you talked about some things there that are traditional. Yep. So it's, it things. really starts with Samhain and continues through Yule. So you do those things really all the season long. But it, there's a big kickoff with Samhain. Yeah. And so you talked about some traditional things there. And we'll link those back to uh, Irish Celtic culture. Like the burning bonfires, right? And so think about that and and the symbolic meaning of that, right? The sun is uh, losing its uh, light, right? The days are growing shorter, the darkness is coming. So you're going, one of the things that they would do is they would take the bonfires and they would take fire from the bonfires and take it into the the hearth in the home. And it's a way of kind of keeping the fire alive. An interesting element with that, Mm -hmm. with the bonfires, we would take evergreen Mm -hmm. and burn those in the bonfire. I mean, it's obvious that pine is a really good accelerant in fires, Mm -hmm. but the fact that it's evergreen, it's green throughout the the winter months, Mm -hmm. you take that symbolically into your home. And yep. the fire from that, it's, that you, you, you build a bonfire with the, the evergreen mm-hmm. and you take that fire into your home and you're bringing literally a representation of the light and life of summer yeah. in your home during the winter months. Yeah. So it's very it was, nature based. Yeah. Definitely a focus on the evergreen um, in those rituals. Another thing that they would do is, which you mentioned this, was they would put out offerings. Yep. And in ancient culture, they believed that not only was it the Fae that was able to come, but the Fomorians mainly. 
and then remember these are the the spirits of the the giants yeah. right these is these are demons um literally demons because that's what demons are in the bible it's it's the spirits of the disembodied nephilim that are wiped out by the flood so that's yeah. how you end up with this motif of the giants uh, the spirits of sea giants. Yep. And even like the, the, with the offerings, even now with like trick or treat, like when kids go to the door, like when children would do this, it was like, if you didn't have an offering for, for the Fae, for the elemental spirits, you risk their wrath as mm-hmm. trickster spirits. So that's where this sort of trick or treat element comes from. Yeah. Um, another thing too, talking about offerings, the Fomorians really liked grain Milk and children. Like I mean, two thirds of the children is what they would offer up. Um, I mean, dip and batter those children in some grain and milk and flour and just. So I also read somewhere or heard that there was no culture actually offering up two thirds of their children, but yeah. that is consistent with the rate of infant mortality in a lot of ancient cultures. So a lot of people, whenever infants died, they probably attributed it to the Fomorians oh, yeah. there. And, um, Probably to not doing the ritualistic things that needed to be done. That's, and that's a lot of the ideas where you get uh, like changeling children and mm-hmm. things yeah. like that. That's well, where yeah, that the comes Fae, from. The Fae would do that. They yep. would. They would. Uh, it, it was also like you wasn't allowed to uh, use certain woods, like elm. Yeah. Like if you made a crib made of elm, or if you, your child was born with a, an unexpected deformity or developed mm-hmm. some sort of uh, some sort of like disease or mm-hmm. something, they they thought that your children was were abducted and swapped mm-hmm. out with some sort of fairy fairy sick, child. Sick, fire, yep. Fairy child. Yep. Um. But so basically, what's going on here is you're doing all of this stuff because I think that's what happened to me. Like <laughs> oh I think gosh. I was a changeling child, yeah. and that's that's why I'm the way that I am now. Makes a lot of sense. It it really does when you think about it. Um. But. The uh, so the Fomorians they viewed this as the time of the year when the veil thinned that the Fomorians would come and exact their tribute yep. and so that's it's out of fear right this is done out of fear that's the yep. intention it's it's out of fear we don't want to lose our children we don't want to risk their wrath so we're going to offer these things to these, oh, yeah, these even, spirits even when I was celebrating Samhain it was the the fear there was very palpable like you really. Feared the wrath of these spirits, and you've done everything to appease them, to keep them away from you. And that's the, really the spirit of Sal, and it's fear. And when the church, well, we'll get into that. Yeah, well, that's but I was going to say the church has a really weird view on on Halloween and linking it to Sal, and it's the same sort of fear, but it's that shouldn't be the case at all. Yeah, but we'll get into that. Yep. Okay. And so that's what's going on. With Samhain. That's what it's about, right? Yep. The veil is thinning. The seasons are changing. That's, that enables uh, beings, spiritual beings like the Fomorians, the yep. Fae, to come out and to do these trickster kind of things, right? And so you're going to do these things to um, appease them, right? You're going to offer things up. You're going to dress your children up in, in masks so that they blend in when the monsters from the margins Yep. come into the center, right? Um, so that they blend in and that you can't see. Another practice that was done too is they would set a meal um, during that time because they also thought that their, da- their dead, the spirits of their dead ancestors could come out too. And they wanted, whenever they came out, they were seeking hospitality. So one of the other practices that they would do is they would set up a, a meal, have a family meal, and they would set a plate and empty seats for the spirits of their dead ancestors and just well. uh 
talking about uh, the monsters on the margins, like you can see even even with the seasonal divide, mm-hmm. how the sky's gray over and yep. the light's gone. Like there is no line anymore between the center and the margins, That's and right. these monsters just bleed in. That's right. Looking for way, looking to distinguish people from the center mm-hmm. from the monsters in the margins. Yep. That's important. Um, that's very important because if you're going to understand Samhain and Halloween here in a few minutes, you need to understand how the how the margins in the center work and how yep. there's monsters in the margins, right? Like think about even back to the medieval Christian worldview in the way that medieval maps were drawn. Like in the center is Jerusalem. And on the outside, on the outskirts, on the margins are the dragons, the dragons in the sea, the monsters, these mixtures of men and beasts, right? Just, just go and Google medieval Christian map and you'll find tons, of, de- you'll find tons of depictions of this. This is the ancient worldview. Yep. And that comes from the, the Genesis story. And, the, you know, uh, like you've got this. Or if you look at old maps and you see like sea serpents in the water. Right, that's it. Yep. Yeah. Well, it comes from the, ancient, from the biblical worldview, right? So think about it. You've got this tree on this mountain in Eden, in the garden. And it's the Axis Mundi. It is the center point of the world. And the further out that you move from there in the story, the more you start to get oddities and idiosyncrasies and and darkness, right? Because you're moving further away from the light and things begin to be veiled. And then whenever you finally get to the end of the world where the water's at, guess what's there? The giants, the Nephilim, the mixtures of the sons of God and the daughters of men. So that's the worldview. And that worldview gets trans... I mean, you see that in Israel later on, right? That worldview... It, and that cosmic geography is translated to Israel later on. So you've got Israel where the temple is the Axis Mundi. It is the center of the world, right? And guess what's on the outside of Israel? You've got the monsters out there. You've got the Azazels out there, the 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 desert demons, the goat-headed desert demons. And then you've got the, the Lilus and the Lilith out there who are these succubi um, who are out there taking the lives of children and you know, doing all that thing at, at night. So this is the this is grounded in the biblical worldview. Yep. Um, it's an interesting cultural take on it, but it is grounded there. So, all right. So this is what Samhain is. Okay. Um, it is about uh, the thinning veil, the changing seasons, the spirits of the Fomorians coming to exact tribute, the the trickster fae who are fallen angels which is so in line with Genesis 6. Yep. These fallen angels who are <clears throat> tricksters who come yes. down and they take the daughters of men to belong to themselves and they produce these giant offspring. Um, and you're going to appease them by offering up sacrifices and uh, you're going to make uh, yep. a space for your dead ancestors and you're going to dress your children up and you're going to take the, fi- the fire into your home, into your hearth to remember the sun. That's Samhain. And people yep. still celebrate this. And actually, it, traditionally, it was practiced at fairy mounds in Ireland. Yeah. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, I actually heard that they re started repracticing that recently. What is it like the she mounds? Is that what it's called? I think so. Yeah, the she yeah. mounds, um, which connects also to the there's a banshee the and banshee, banshee yeah. yeah, which there's a as <clears throat> a fairy, um, fairy uh, cryptid cryptozoological type of being, like a uh, sort of uh, harbinger of death and bad yeah. omens, right. Um, but they've recently uh, started repracticing at the fairy mounds, doing Samhain bonfires, and so, um, so the druids used to do that, and I guess they've got modern takes on that now. So that's interesting. Okay, so that's Samhain. That's what yep. it's about. Um, now, let's get into Halloween, because the, the thing that you hear all the time, Richie, 
is that Samhain is just a con- or that sorry that Halloween is just a continuation of Samhain and it's this pagan holy day that Christians have baptized and we need to stop practicing right, it. Let's let's make a distinctive point here. Okay, uh, Samhain. Uh, people need to remember Samhain is a festival based on fear. That is the driving intention behind Samhain mm-hmm. is fear, yep. fear of the elemental spirits, fear of the wrath living under their servitude, their slavery, their, their burden, their sanctions. And Halloween is the direct opposite of that. It is living from a point of view of victory, victory. and triumph. Yeah. And we need to explain that. Okay. Well, let's get into that. So, as of right now, we are drawing a line between the two. Yes. They are not the same. Halloween is not a continuation of the pagan Irish festival of Samhain. We said it last year. We're saying it again this year. It is not a continuation of it. Now, it does take themes in Samhain, and it does incorporate them into on the, purpose. On purpose. Yep. But it's not for the reasons you think. Yep. It's not for the purposes of baptizing paganism. It is for a completely different purpose, and it's genius. I said it this is in, for blatantly humiliating. Paganism and elemental spirits. It is. And this is actually why I think people need to celebrate Halloween. Exactly. <laughs> All right. But before we get to that, I, I want to make the case that Halloween is a distinctly Christian holy day. Just think about the name. Right? Think about the name. Halloween. Halloween. Actually, that is short for Hallow's Eve. Yep. And what is Hallow's Eve? It is the evening or the day... Before All Saints Day. All Saints Day. Yep. Okay. And what's All Saints Day? Oh, it's, it's, we were remembering the victorious dead in Christ. The great cloud the, of witnesses. The great cloud of, of witnesses. Yep. Okay. Uh, I actually have <clears> the 2019 <throat> Book of Common Prayer here. Um, and it actually has a section here on the, uh, the feasts and the, uh, the commemoration days in the Anglican Church. And for All Saints Day, here's what it says. It is a commemoration of the faithful departed. Yep. Okay? All right. So, we've set the stage. Okay? Halloween is the evening before All Saints Day. It, you can think of it this way. You can think of it as like Christmas Eve. Yeah. It's literally celebrating the victorious dead. I yep. mean, the v- victorious saints. It's, I preparing, mean. it's preparing the heart for this particular thing. Yep. Now, here's how Halloween works. Okay. And it's genius. I'm going to say it again. It's what are genius. they victorious over? Right. What exactly. are they victorious over? It's the monsters of paganism. Yep. Let's, let's think about Halloween. And let's think about how the church has celebrated Halloween. So as I said, the church incorporates parts of Samhain into itself, but it's not for the purposes you think. So some of the things that are kept are the dressing up, right? But it's not for the same reasons. Yep. It's not based out of fear. It's actually based out of mockery. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not to blend in with the, with the mighty fae of Renown. It's to mock yeah. the mighty fae. Yeah. And the now crushed fae. Yeah. And so you're... You're, you dress up your kids, and it's no longer out of fear. It's to mock. It's to mock the monsters in the margin, right? Um, and remember, there's this story here, right? The monsters in the margins, they're coming flooding in because the veil's thin. So in Halloween, you have this same motif, right? So the monsters in the margin come in, but these aren't the same kind of monsters. These are goofy. 
Yeah. And that element of silliness is is on purpose. That's what it's for. It's almost a meme. Yeah. It's, it's literally it's, an ancient meme. It literally on, on is Sawa. an ancient meme. Yep. And so you've got the monsters and they're coming and they're asking for candy. And, yeah. Instead you know, of blood offerings. We, now we want Snicker bars. Right. And, and, yep. and, um, and then the problem of Halloween, the monsters, it gets solved in All Saints Day. Yep. Let's think about the story here. Okay. So you have the monsters from Samhain coming in. They're, the veil's thin. They're fl- but guess what happens the next day? Poof, they disappear. Why do they disappear? Because we're remembering the work of Christ and what he has done for the saints. It's literally a playing out of the victorious church. It is. It is. So you have Christ who comes, he lives the perfect life we could never live, right? He's, he's righteous, he never sins, right? Um, he dies on the cross, and he's resurrected on the third day. And in his work for us, not only does he die for our sins, but Paul says in Colossians 2, 14 through 15, he says, uh, he, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with the legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So he's talking about our sins, right? We owed this debt, Right, that we could not pay. Um, so Christ deals with that. But that's not all that he deals with. In 15, he says, And he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So the rulers and the principalities, right? The, the rulers and the authorities. Some translations have authorities, some have principalities. Um, these angelic beings, these fallen beings who are over the nations, Christ disarms them. And now they're this mockery. They've been triumphed over, right? And not only does he give that to us, but Paul says, he, tri- he says, uh, triumphing over them in him. Not only does Christ triumph over them, but we also triumph over them in him. Yep. And we share and participate in his victory over the forces of darkness. And that's the reason why the church dresses kids up in goofy costumes. That's the reason why you have this ancient meme being played out. And that's the reason why the monsters disappear on All Saints Day is because the victory of Christ is being played out in a liturgical way. And it shows the victory of Christ in a way that perhaps no other holiday left does. Yeah. Um, and so Halloween is not about the gore. Halloween is not about murder. Halloween is not about the glorification of the forces of darkness. If you are celebrating Halloween as a Christian in the traditional way and in the traditional sense that it always was, it couldn't be further away from those things. It is about the victory of Christ over the forces of darkness, not the glorification of the darkness. I mean, we need to put it out there that these Christians who are reserved about this thing are literally doing more in their hesitation and fear to promote evil and darkness and the agenda of the fallen. That's the attitude than, of Samhain. Absolutely. Than anything to do with Halloween. Like, your, your refusal to celebrate the victory of Christ and the church over these beings, you're literally playing in the same fear that brought on Samhain to begin with. Yeah. And so, um, also... Um, in last, uh, last year's episode, we talked about that Samhain and some of the practices may even be Christian appropriations of Christian rituals. Because here's the reality, and we said this last year, and it's still true. Um, we've done a lot of digging since last year. There, there is no manual out there how to practice Samhain. Right. It doesn't exist. Uh, the best that we can do is piece that together 
in ancient mytho-historical works yeah. like the Book at, of Invasions. Yeah, you look at various cultures and they all have their sort of generic fall festival. Mm-hmm. Like, they, pagans are very observant of natural processes, mm-hmm. of natural revelation. And so all their festivals are based on the observations of nature. Yeah. So between different cultures, you'll have aspects that are added onto that. But the sort of autumnal festival is something that's multicultural. And you have the differences added on people group to people group. But yeah, the the basics, the, the foundations of Samhain are just the observation of the dying sun, the moving from light into shadow, things like that. Here's another thing, too. The records that we do have in things like the uh, Layer Eber Gabala or the Book of Invasions, that's recorded by Christians. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like the Eddas in Norse mythology. What we know about them, it, it's come through the lens of Christianity. So, and it's totally possible that the things that are actually considered Samhain rituals are actually appropriations of Christian rituals. Right. Yeah. Um, and so <clears throat> it's almost like Christians are out there afraid of something that perhaps never even really even existed. Like we don't even know what these people, like, this is what we think. Yep. Their rituals were like, but in reality, we don't know, and that's the reason why yep. when you mind, go from pagan yeah. to pagan, yep. your Samhain rituals are going to look different, and yeah. you've got different emphases because there's no manual out there telling you how to do exactly. This. It's this reconstructed paganism that um, of, of that's trying to recreate and reconstruct something that may not have even honestly existed. our our own reconstructing of it makes it worse than it probably ever was. Yeah. So, I mean, even in my practice, like with the people I knew around me that were practicing, how I celebrated Samhain was completely different from how they would do it. Sure, there were shared elements like the bonfire and the observation of light and life and death and darkness and things like that. But those are just universal to the season. Yeah. And that is the foundations of all these autumnal sort of holidays. It, it, the various uh, practices, rituals, rites really depended on the person that was practicing. So. Yeah, there was no sort of like standard manual for how to celebrate Samhain. Yeah, um, Stephen Wedgworth in his article, it's called uh, "Halloween: Its Creation and Recreation." He says this. He says, um, "What is the means by which the demonic realm is vanquished? In a word, mockery. Satan's great sin and our great sin is pride. Thus, to drive Satan from us, we ridicule him. Think of Martin Luther, right?" When uh, he says, when Satan comes and he he brings to mind all of the things that I've done, um, you know, this or you've done this or that. And he says, yes, and Christ come to die for sinners. What of it? Right. Like it's ridiculing. (laughs) Yeah. And he says, uh, Satan's great sin and our great sin is pride. Thus, to drive away Satan from us, we ridicule him. This is why the custom arose of portraying Satan in a ridiculous red suit with horns and tail. Nobody thinks the devil really looks like this. The Bible teaches that he is a fallen arch cherub. Rather, the idea is to ridicule him because he has lost the battle with Jesus and he no longer has power over this. And that's what Halloween's about. Right. It's not just doing this. Uh, it's not just mocking Satan and being a meme. It's mark, mocking all of the forces of darkness and showing that the problem of the monsters and the margins who come flooding into the center, the the uh, the Philistines who come flooding into Jerusalem, or the Nephilim who come flooding into uh, the sacred space, 
the way that they're dealt with is by ridicule and prayer and proclaiming the victory of Christ over the enemies. That's what Halloween is about. Um, Just think about that, though, how Halloween is basically a sword that's been prepared and given to the church to swing back on paganism, on these on these festivals, these ancient rites, like it, you're literally railing against the fear of these elemental spirits. Mm-hmm. Like you're you're not living in fe- under their fear, under their their shackles anymore. So laugh when when you have trick or treaters, trick or treaters come to your door, give them candy, laugh. I mean, make make a joke out of it. That's what it's about. Like you're doing more to accentuate the victory and proclaim the victory of Christ in the church in celebrating these these rights in Halloween than you are being fearful of some ancient culture and their practices that might not have even been a thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and Paul addresses this kind of fear in this um, in, in Colossians. You know, this, this was a people who were, you know, part of the Greco-Roman world. They were Gentiles. They were pagans prior to becoming Christians. And one of the things that they had fear of was was the elemental spirits. And wow, if we don't draw, if like if we don't practice asceticism and like offer these things up to these 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 elemental spirits then like they're going to come back on us and like we're going to pay for that like they're coming to exact tribute and and Paul basically says if you died with Christ you died to the elemental elemental spirits of the world why as if you were still alive to the world do you submit to their regulations yep exactly and and it's that right odd. there should be the driving spirit of halloween yeah and it's it's odd because christians who are skeptical of halloween in some way do that in an inverted way. They're afraid. They're afraid. They're afraid. They're afraid. And that's not the spirit of Halloween. Even if you look into the way that the demonic works, like even in hauntings and in the cases that I've worked over the years, fear is such a catalyst and a fuel for these for these beings. That's what they that's what they feed on. That's when you, when you go into a, a demonic haunting and there's manifestations of paranormal activity. It's to cause fear. It's to instill fear. That that fear feeds into their their strength and that's all people are that's all the church is doing when they're fearful of halloween or they or they refrain from celebrating they're literally feeding into the agenda of the enemy yeah i agree and um so that's what halloween's about halloween is a liturg is a genius liturgical season where the story of the pagan monsters Come flooding into the margins. Literally what evil meant for evil, God is using for good. Right. They come flooding in, just like they did in Samhain. But they're not the same. Yep. They're goofy now. They're, they're a mockery. They're a meme of what they once were. And then they're vanquished on All Saints Day. So that's the problem, I think, with, most, with, with shallow, evangelical, modern Christianity. Because we are so disconnected from our spiritual heritage and we're afraid of Roman Catholicism <laughs> and we don't like the papal, the papal uh, holy, day, holy days, we're afraid of things like All Saints Day because we think that we're Roman Catholics if we celebrate things like that. And what you actually do is you actually totally misunderstand what Halloween is about yep. and you actually become fearful like the pagans all because you're afraid of the history of your own church. <laughs> yeah. And even just the, the way that Halloween is structured, like you have this one night of frolic and fright, like it just, it shows the limited nature of evil that evil only right. has this certain time period. They yep. have their time to do what they're allotted and yep. then they're vanquished. They're, they're in the vanquished. End. That's it. It's basically a story of the gospel. Yep. 
played out in a liturgical way. It reminds me when de- uh, Jesus confronts the demon-possessed man in the, in the cemetery. Well, it's, it's even kind of like a, a baptism in some ways. Like you go into the waters below the earth yep. where the spirits are at, right? In, into the abyss. But you go down there to mock them in some ways. It's, hey, I'm not staying down here. Like Jesus, I'm coming back up. I'm going to be resurrected. And then you come up out of the water. It's the exact same pattern. Yeah, the demons being like, you come to, have you come to judge us before our appointed time? Like they even know mm-hmm. that they have, an, they have a limited run. Yeah. So it's it's Halloween is genius. And you're putting Christi- the you're putting evil back on a leash when you when you celebrate Halloween. And I think that's the problem with our culture right now, right? Our culture right now needs All Saints Day because as of right now, our culture is like this. It's basically Halloween all the time. Absolutely, with no no All Saints Day. The right. the center is no more. There, the margins are everywhere. I mean, it's it's invaded the center. There's inversions and there's uh, monsters, chaos monsters everywhere. And mixtures, mixtures everywhere. Yeah, things that are androgynous. Um, they're they're the giants. They're the, yep. they're the monsters, and um, we need liturgical rituals and festivals to remind us of the true story. And Halloween gives you that. It's and I get it. I get it. Like there's people who are afraid of scary movies and yeah. they don't like the gore of it. And I think that that's actually a pagan subversion of Halloween. I think that the pagans are actually trying to subvert Halloween. Yeah, exactly. Like you go to spirit <clears throat> Halloween, like my family, we went to spirit Halloween a couple of weeks ago. Um, where we got there, it wasn't just costumes in there. Like there was like objects for witchcraft in there. Yep. Like there were tarot cards, there were Ouija boards, there were, uh, witches, pinnacles, and you know all those kind of things. Um, that's not the spirit of Halloween either. Um, whenever Christ, this is a distinctly Christian holiday. Again, remember the name Halloween, Hallows Eve, right? It is the day before when the monsters come in, but we're, they're about to get their butts handed to them, and they're about to be vanquished back to the margins because we're about to declare the lordship of Christ, yep. right? So the pagans are trying to take it. Um, and I think that one of the things that we need, though, as a culture, especially as, as Christians, is we need to, uh, liturgics that remind us of this story. And I think that recovering Halloween, the traditional spirit of Halloween, would be one very effective way for us and to do what that. what you're saying there about uh, the, the pagans trying to even subvert Halloween in and of itself, that's, that's really a thing. Like in paganism, when I was, when I was a pagan, we thought of Halloween as a joke. Like, mm-hmm. Halloween was just, it was a slap, even to the pagans, Halloween was a slap in the face. And we, we didn't take it seriously at all. We were all about reconnecting with the ancient rites and looking backwards. Like, we didn't want anything to do with Halloween because we thought, even as pagans, that it was someone else's attempt of making fun of us, is what it was, and, and our ideology. So, even on from the other side of the fence, you can see that uh, Halloween is foreign from Samhain, and it was something done in mockery yeah. of the evil spirits, of, of the elemental spirits. Yeah. So pagans even know this. Yeah. So to say, to look at it from our side of the fence and say, oh, the pagans are rallying behind Halloween. No, pagans reject Halloween, and they see it as the offense that it is, and they're trying now to subvert it and inject their own spirit back into it. And as Christians, we are so fearful of Roman Catholicism and everything that comes with it, that we're going to just let them have it. Yep. And just think about it. 
Martin Luther didn't do that. Whenever <sighs> Luther, whenever Luther yes. posted his 95 theses, guess when he posted it? He posted it on Halloween. Why did he do that? Well, James Jordan talks about it. He was very specific on the day that he posted it. Why? Because there was darkness in the church. Yeah, then, let right? your the, ghouls and goblins come to that door and read those <laughs> theses pinned on the door there. It, 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 darkness was in the church. The, 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 the doctrine of justification by faith alone had been lost. Yep. Okay? And it had been covered up in the sacramental system of, of Roman Catholicism. Okay? And so Luther picks the day before All Saints Day to post his 95 Theses. Why? So that he could declare the lordship of Christ over the forces of darkness. Right, like Luther, like I get it. Protestants love Reformation Day, and and we do a Reformation Day Halloween celebration in our church where we we put those things together and we celebrate both of them. But we celebrate that as an alternative to to that, and that's that wasn't what Luther was doing either. Yeah, and so I think that we need to uh, recover that. So we're already in at an hour. Oh, really? Yeah, we're oh, already, wow. we're already in at an hour. Um, I want to spend the rest of our time. Answer them some objections, which we've already talked about some objections, some practical objections. Um, But I want to really address some theological objections that people are going to do this. And I've got some of my book here, which I mentioned last year that I was writing, and I'm still writing now. He's still writing. Um, And a lot of that's because I've had a lot of job changes and stuff like that since then. And so um, I'm hoping to release it hopefully by the end of the month or at least by the end of the year. So we'll see how that turns out. But I've got the third chapter of it um, practically wrote, and it's a chapter on addressing objections. And, and, you know, from a theological perspective, the major objection that you're going to hear when it comes to um, sacred timekeeping is what I'm saying is in regards to men and authority. And here's how the argument goes. Man does not have the authority to declare any holy day and because of that, we should not be observing any man-made holy days. I'm going to destroy this I was argument. going to say, I can think of right now several instances where Christ even honors uh, the holy days that are not even like given by... Yeah. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, by, yeah. by Yahweh. By Yahweh. Well, now i got to say this. I, I, I somewhat appreciate this objection. And the reason why is because I understand the thought and the intention behind it. So the people who are making this argument, they're, they're wanting to preserve God's absolute sovereignty as the ruler of creation, right? Um, and I can, yeah. I can dig that. I can appreciate that. Uh, they're also not wanting to fall into liturgical abuse. Um, and this is a, a, an unfortunate reality. And those are, there are those who are in mainline denominations like the Episcopalians and the PCUSA who treat Pride Month like a liturgical season with uh, rainbow clerical stoles and all of that. Um, let me say this. That's an absolute abuse to sacred timekeeping, and none of us want to end up there. However, there's still yet a few problems with their argument, as much as I appreciate it and have tried to steel man it here um, by stating my appreciation for it. Uh, first, um, it's simply unbiblical. <laughs> just <laughs> like, well, let's just pull the rug right uh, out from underneath them right off the bat. It's, it's simply unbiblical. And um, I just, sus- just speaking of who the church is now as, as the sons we're gonna, of God. We're, we're going to yeah. get to that. Um, I, I suspect that those who make this argument do not understand 
the full biblical theological implications of what it means to be sons of God. Yep. Okay, so let's think about it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and on the fourth day of creation, he put the sun, moon, and the stars in the firmament heavens, and, and God does what? He puts them there to rule over the seasons and to, to keep time. So God is literally delegating this task to these embodiment elemental spirits. Well, we're, we're, we're going to get we're gonna get to that. Um, so he puts the sun, moon, and stars yep. in the sky, and they're there for signs or for seasons is what it says. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, we learn that the stars aren't just stars. Right. They're, they're actually uh, related and symbolize angelic beings. So we, are, we already talked about this. Like, go read Dante. Go read Paradiso. Go read Lewis's discarded image. The stars and the sun and the moon and the planets all were associated with spiritual beings. Yep. You even see it in Lewis's space trilogy, like Paralandra and, and outside the, the silent planet and, and all of that. Like, it's there. Uh, this is the Christian worldview, and we see it in Scripture. In Job 38, 7, um, we learn that when God laid the foundations of the earth during the act of creation, the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. Here's what it says. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line out upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid the cornerstone? Uh, let me find the other page here. I was on a roll until then. I got my pages all mixed up here. Uh, let's see here. Providentially hindered. Providentially hindered. To build up suspense. I know it. All right. All right. Yeah. All right. So, on what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. See what's going on here? In Hebrew, this is called parallelism. And it's a form of Hebrew poetry. So what's going on here in Job 38, 7, when it says, When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The morning stars and the sons of God are not two different creations of God. Rather, they're the same, and they're being paralleled with one another. Right? Like you can actually, if you read the ESV, it will show you where parallelism is at whenever you see the indentions here. Yep. See how this one is indented the way that it is, and this one's indented underneath it? It's showing you that that's Hebrew parallelism. That's one of the reasons why the ESV is really great for showing you that kind of stuff. So here in Job, we see that the morning stars, the stars, the sun, moon, and stars of Genesis chapter one on the fourth day of creation are associated with the sons of God. Okay? Guess what happens in Genesis chapter six? The sons of God fall. Absolutely. Yep. And guess what happens after that? God just decides he's going to rule over time now. Nope, actually, that's not what he does. <laughs> guess, like, what no. God, guess what God does? He calls a man out of Babylon named Abraham, and he tells Abraham that he's going to have descendants as numerous as the stars. As the what? The stars. Yep. yep. And then <clears throat> um, one of... Abraham's descendants named Joseph later on, and I think it's Genesis chapter 37. He gives him a particular dream, and it, it, it drives his brothers to jealousy over him. I don't know if you remember the dream, but he has this dream that the sun, moon, and stars are all bowing down to him. And guess who the sun, moon, and stars are in the dream? His mother, his father, and his 12 brothers. Yep. So you have descendants of Abraham depicted as stars 
Guess what Israel gets called in the scriptures? God's son. Sons of God. Okay? Guess what happens in the New Testament? Guess what Paul says happens? Romans chapter 7, or maybe it's that chapter 8. I can't remember. I preached the Romans for like three years. You would think that I'd be... I was going to say it was a long road through that. Um, Paul says this. He says that those who are in Christ are now sons of God. And in Romans 11, he talks about that we have been grafted into the olive tree, which is Israel. And in Ephesians 3, he says the dividing line that now divided Jew and Gentile has now been torn down. And in Christ, one new man has been created. We have been added to the number of the sons of God. And guess what the sons of God do? Guess what they relate to? They relate to the sun, moon, and stars. And guess what the sun, moon, and stars do? They rule over time. They keep time. And this is the reason why Israel also, drumroll, instituted religious liturgical festivals in their own year. Yes, they did. Okay? I'm going to give you a couple of examples of this. The first one comes from the book of Esther. Okay? For those who are unfamiliar, I'm giving you a theology lesson right now. So in, in Esther... Uh, you have the story of Esther and Mordecai and Haman and King Ahasuerus. Um, and Ruth is uh, the queen to Ahasuerus, and uh, she is a Jewish woman. And Haman, uh, for various reasons, wants to destroy, mainly because Mordecai won't bow to him, he only bows to God. Um, he wants to destroy the Jewish people. And so Ahasuerus, uh, you know, Ruth intercedes on behalf of the people, um, and Ahasuerus says that he can't take the decree back, but he's going to give them the opportunity to fight, to defend themselves. And, um, you know, there's the entire thing of casting lots and, you know, all of that. Um, make a long story short, um, they go up against Israel, and Israel basically destroys them. And then... Um, Haman and his family dies. The lot basically falls on them, and what was going to happen to Israel happens to them. Uh, So, to memorialize their victory over Haman, there is a feast that is instituted by Mordecai called Purim. Purim is the word in Hebrew for lot. Here's what it says in Ruth, sorry, not Ruth, in Esther 9, starting in verse 20. And I'm reading from the Lexham English uh, Septuagint. So, um, verse 20. Now, Mordecai wrote these words into a document, and he sent it to all the Judeans in the kingdom of Ahasuerus, to those near and to those far away, to establish these as good days, to observe both the 14th and the 15th of Adar, for in these days the Judeans rested from their enemies and observed the entire month, which was Adar, in which it changed for them from grief to joy, from pain to a good day. All the good days of feasting and merriment to send portions to their friends and to the poor. So the Judeans accepted it, just as Mordecai wrote for them how Haman the son of Hamad- <laughs> Hamadotha and the Macedonian made war against them, how he set a decree and a lot to destroy them, and how he went to the king, saying that he should hang Mordecai. But as much as he had made an attempt to bring evil things upon the Judeans, they came upon him, and he was hanged, and his children. On account of this, these days are called Purim, because the lots 
that in their dialect are called Purim, on account of the words of this letter, and as much as they suffered on account of these things, and as much as happened to them, and the Judeans established it, and they took it upon themselves, and upon their seed, and upon those handed it after them, so that they would not celebrate the month differently, and so that these days would be kept as a remembrance throughout generation after generation by city and family and territory. And these days of Purim will be celebrated for all time, and their remembrance will not come to an end from the generations. Then Esther the queen, the daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Judean, wrote all that they did in the confirmation of the letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai and Esther the queen established themselves privately, and they stood according to their own health and their plan, and Esther established it by the command for eternity, and it was written for a memorial. Guess what? Mordecai, in the story, is depicted not as a covenant breaker, but as a covenant keeper. He's depicted as a righteous man. Haman is the covenant breaker. And guess what? God never revokes this man-made holy day called Purim. Why? I suspect that he was pleased that one of his mature sons was acting as a microcosmic version of the sun, moon, and stars, ruling on earth as it is in heaven. Exactly. Yep. Now, this isn't the only... One of the new sons of God behaving as a son of God. Doing what sons of God do. Absolutely. Ruling <clears throat> over time. Ruling over season. Bringing... Not... not one of the arguments that you hear, and I deal with this in my book too, is that this, that we're somehow helping God be Lord when we do this. We're not helping God be Lord. He no. is Lord. All that we're doing, when we structure time liturgically according to God, the true God, is it's, we're living in light of His Lordship. Right. It's this delegation to us just to give back in praise to Him. Yeah, it's ridiculous to say that, because yep. then you would have to assume that something like the Great Commission is helping the Lord. We're not helping yep. the Lord. We are simply living in light of what is true, that He has all authority in heaven and on earth, and we are proclaiming that to the world. And we are living on earth as it is in heaven. We're not making Him Lord. He is Lord, and we're living in light of that. Now, this isn't the only instance of this. There's another instance of this, and this one comes from a deuterocanonical book called 1 Maccabees. And you may be saying, hey, wait a minute, that's not Scripture. But I promise you, it's going to connect to Scripture here in just a moment for you. And I will, um, after I get my paper straight here, I will um, show you how this connects to Scripture. Okay. Let me see here. Flip my page around here. All right. There we go. Okay. All right. So, in, let's see. Yes. It is 1 Maccabees, chapter 4, verses 36 through 62. I'm going to connect this for you here in a minute. Okay. But Judas, so this is Judas Maccabee. Okay. Uh, This is happening in the intertestamental period. So, in that 400-year gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay, so there's this man named, uh, he's this ruler, his name is Antiochus Epiphanes. He comes into Jerusalem, he desecrates the temple, he sacrifices swine in the holy place, which is a big no-no. That's an unclean animal. So, the temple has been profaned. Judas, Maccabee, and his brothers, they're going to take it back. 
The monsters in the margins have come flooding in. They fought them back. Now they're going to reclaim what's theirs. And here's what it says. But Judas and his brother said, Look, our enemies are broken. We should go up to cleanse the holy place and dedicate it. And the entire, and the entire army assembled and went up to Mount Zion. And they saw the sanctuary stripped bare and the altar profaned and the gate burned. And in the courtyards, plants were overgrown like a forest or like one of the mountains. And the priest's chamber was torn down. And they tore their robes and they mourned with great lamentation and covered themselves with ashes upon their head. And they fell down on their face upon the land and they sounded the trumpets, giving the signal, and they cried out to heaven. Then Judas ordered men to fight against those in the citadel until he had cleansed the holy place. So he selected priests who were blameless, eager for the law, and they cleansed the holy place and removed the stones that defiled it in an unclean space. And they deliberated about the altar for the burnt offering, which was profaned. What should they do with it? And the good counsel fell on them to take it down, lest it might become for, for them as a disgrace, because the nations defiled it. So you literally have the nations being depicted here as these monsters in the margin who come and defile things, very much like the Nephilim. Yep. Um, and they tore down the altar and they stored the stones on a mountain house in a suitable place until a prophet was able to report about them. So that's interesting because we hear that there was silence during that point, but apparently there were prophets. But anyway, apparently they weren't saying anything that was on par with Scripture. And they took unhewn stones according to the law, and they built a new altar just like the previous one. And they rebuilt the holy place and the inside of the house and sanctified the courtyards. Wow. So, yeah, I thought that you can't bless things and set them apart, but apparently you can. Yep. Um, anyway, all right. Um. And they made a new and they made new holy vessels, and they brought the lampstand and the altar of the whole burnt offerings and of incense and the table into the temple, and they burned incense on the altar and kindled the lamps on the lampstand, and they shone in the temple, and they put bread loaves on the table and spread out the curtain, and they completed all the work that they had begun. And they rose early on the morning, on the twenty fifth of the ninth month, that is the month of Kislev. Guess what month Kislev is? Take a wild guess. Take a wild guess, huh? Yep. Is it October? What is it? December. December. December 25th. December 25th. Guess what day December 25th is? That's Christmas. I mean, if you don't know what it, I mean, yeah, roll with it. So, uh, it's also uh, the solstice, I think. Yes. No, the solstice is the 21st. Is it? Okay. Yep. All right. <clears throat> um, so, the month of Kislev. Uh, let's see. They rose early in the morning on the 25th of the ninth month. That is the month of Kislev. The 148 year, uh, the 148 year, and they offered up sacrifices according to the law on the altar for burnt offerings and the new one that they made. According to the season, according to the day during the which the nations defiled it, on that day they dedicated it with songs and lutes and kinyaris and with cymbals. And all the people fell on their, pa- their face, and they bowed, and they gave praise to heaven, which he caused them to prosper. And they performed the dedication of the altar for eight days, and offered up burnt offerings with cheer, and sacrificed the deliverance and thanksgiving, thanksgiving sacrifice. And they decorated according to the face of the temple with gold crowns and small shields and consecrated the gate and the priest chamber and fitted them with doors. And a very great cheer took place among the people and the reproach of the nations was turned back. 
and Judas and his brother and the entire assembly of Israel established the day of dedication of the altar should be celebrated during their times year by year for eight days beginning from the 25th of the month of Kislev with cheer and joy. And they built during that time all around the mountain of Zion high walls and strong towers lest they arrived, uh, lest when they arrived, the nations would trample them down as they did before. And they set apart there a force to guard it. And they fortified Beth Zur to guard it so that the people would have a stronghold by the face of Udumia. All right. Now, I can hear people now, and they're saying, guess what, Josh? That's not scripture. <laughs> guess what, Josh? You just read from the Deuterocanon. And guess what? You're right. But guess what? You're also wrong. And here's why. You're also wrong. Where does the Feast of Dedication, because this is what it's called, they're dedicating the altar, right? They're rededicating the, the temple, the altar, they're sanctifying it, they're setting it apart. Does this appear in Scripture? Does anybody in Scripture celebrate this festival? The answer to the question is yes. Actually, in John 10, verses 22 through 23, we actually read there that Jesus actually went up to the temple during the Feast of Dedication. And here's what it says. The text says, Now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. When was it that the Feast of Dedication happened, Richie? The 25th of December, in the winter. Yep. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. So Jesus goes to the temple during the Feast of Dedication. Now, that's significant. Now, some people might try to make the case that even though the Feast of Dedication is mentioned here, that that didn't necessarily mean that Jesus was observing it. However, this is a logical fallacy. This is an argument from silence. Let's actually speak about what we know. The fact that the feast is mentioned by John demonstrates that it was being used by Jesus and his followers as a legitimate way to mark time. Because that's what holy days do. And then there's also the fact that the feast of dedication is used narratively to tell the story of Jesus walking in the temple during the feast that was liturgically set aside to memorialize the purification and the rededication of the temple. That's no mistake. Jesus walks into the temple in the same way that the temple was purified whenever the pagans had desecrated it. It's no mistake that, G that John mentions Jesus walks into the temple on the Feast of Dedication. There's a parallel happening here. In the same way that the temple was cleansed after it had been desecrated, Jesus is foreshadowing that he will do the same thing. So, Jesus celebrated the Feast of Dedication. John mentions it, which means that it was a way that they were setting time apart, or else he wouldn't have mentioned it. Yes. So, guess what that means? And we're going to circle over back around to Halloween here. Why is it that Judas Maccabee is able to set, a, uh, set apart and declare a holy day that's man-made, and people are able to observe it? Because that's what sons of God do. Absolutely. Either the sun, moon, and stars. And that's the reason, folks, why the church has the authority to set apart holy days like Halloween. And it's legitimate to celebrate it. The argument that we should not be celebrating man-made holy days is moot. It's, hmm, 
I've got some more choice words for it. Um, not only is it moot, but it's immature. And it is not only it's doing that, but it's also abandoning the lordship of Christ over time. Now, don't misunderstand me when I say I'm sure that those people who make this argument are people who would happily confess the lordship of Christ. They would happily say Christ is Lord. However, when it comes to the realm of time, there's cognitive dissonance here. So, I think that the problem with these arguments is that they're straw men um, and they're based out of ignorance. Um, ignorance of the Bible, um, ignorance of the literature surrounding the Bible, and ignorance of the biblical theology in the Bible and, and the significance of Christ's work and what it does for us. Not only does he disarm the rulers and the principalities, but he makes us sons of God. He fixes us in the heavenlies, Paul says in Ephesians 2, with him. And now we're the light of the world. We, we rule over time with the Lord of time. To think that Christ would abandon time to the secular realm, that's just... It's, just, it's uh, ridiculous. Uh, yep. Christ created time <clears throat> yeah. because he is outside of time. Right? Why would Christ abandon the lordship of something he created? That's just goofy. Abraham Kuyper says that there's not a single square inch of creation that Christ doesn't call mine over. That includes time. So. so, that's why you should celebrate Halloween. Absolutely. Because Christ is the Lord of the seasons. And Halloween is a way of taking this old pagan story and putting it under the feet of King Jesus. Richie, you got anything else you want to add to that? I mean, are you still under the notion that you're going to delegate this thing to a matter of conscience? Like, are, are you going to, like, say, okay, this is for your families and individuals to decide for you for me i would take a swing even further and step on toes and say that if you're not celebrating halloween that you are literally advancing the hand of the enemy i think that depending on your intention and your motive you could be i think that if your intention is you're afraid you are yeah but since it's not something that's commanded in scripture um and it is a man-made holy day even though man has the authority to do that I think that it does come down to conscience. Um, I wouldn't say that somebody's in sin for not celebrating Halloween or Christmas. But what other motivation would they have to not celebrate it other than fear of what they perceive it to be? Well, maybe they got something better. I don't know what it is, but if you got something better, throw it out there. <laughs> because it I mean, so, um, yeah. I see no other motivation behind the not celebrating other than you know, fear. I, you know, I could maybe, here, here's an example. Maybe you and I both are. Um, have come from European descent. Um, I think both of us probably have Irish. I know that I have Irish. You've not done an ancestry test, so who knows if what you have? You might have fairy blood for all I know. I, I'm not human. Um, but for for me, I think it makes it makes sense to do that because this is something that comes down from um, a lineage that goes beyond me. It's it's a part of my family's heritage. Um. And so in some ways, it brings together the stories of my pagan ancestors and my Christian ancestors, but it sets the story right. And um, perhaps for somebody else, maybe they come from a different culture and they have a different story other than that one. So I think in that case, it, for somebody like that, it would make sense. Like somebody from the Eastern, Eastern Church who yeah. 
you know, culturally, that's not something that was in their heritage, and they've got something else. I, th- I think that that's fine. the majority of j- objections, though. You see, is I'm not participating in a, a night of dark dedicated to the darkness or to ce- the celebration of evil is what you, is what you see. And I'd say, and, don't do that. Then celebrate yeah, Halloween. Exactly. Celebrate there's, the Lordship there, of there's Christ. There's such an ignorance and a, per- a persistent ignorance when it comes to Halloween. Like you can throw all of this out there, and it's still going to bounce off. Yeah. Off ears, they're not going to listen to it. They're going to still live in fear and still play into the plans of the enemy. Yeah, and I think that if that's your motivation, then then you do have a problem. Yeah, if I it, think that's a serious error right yeah, there. That's yeah. yeah. If if you're living out of fear of the elemental spirits, you're no better than the pagans. If um you're uh, I can if, just, I can just picture Paul jumping up like, "What are you doing?" If you refuse, if you view time as something that's secular, yep, then you've made the secular your god. And guess what? You're going to start celebrating the liturgics of LGBTQ month. You're literally giving the elemental spirits their throne and authority back when yeah. you if you're going to refuse let them, to celebrate. If you're going to let the monsters in the margins uh, tell you what holy days to celebrate, um, then, yeah, that's a problem, too. Um, and to act like that you're neutral on it, that you're just not going to celebrate anything except the Lord's Day. Well, what about the other six days of the week? Is Christ not Lord over them? Because you practically, at a practical level... Neutrality is a myth. Yeah, neutrality is a myth. You're acting like Christ is only Lord over that day, at least at a practical level, even though you confess the opposite. So why don't you be consistent? Get rid of the cognitive dissonance. Make Christ the Lord of the rest of your week. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a soundbite for you. There you go. All right. Some of the most fierce practical points I've heard so far. There you go. Uh, that's good. Um, so I think that I've got, let me see if I can find it here. Practical application. Take your children trick or treating. Make, mock the enemy. Mock the enemy. Mock the enemy. You know, your, your kids are out getting, uh, candy Reese's cups and, and not blood sacrifices. So I mean, make, make mockery of the ancients. Yep. Um, um, triumph over them in him. Halloween is footstooling Samhain. It is. It literally is. It literally is. It literally is. That's the sound bite right there. <laughs> That's the sound bite That's right the there. That's the sound bite. That's good. <laughs> it is literally footstooling Samhain. It um, is. I've got a prayer here from the 2019 Book of Common Prayer for All Saints Day. I know we're not at All Saints Day yet, but I just want you to see the traditional emphasis on the things that we're talking about here. Um, I'm thinking Theoden. I'm thinking him standing in Rohan and him saying, Hail the victorious dead. There you go. Uh, this is what it's about. Almighty God, you have knit together your elect in one communion and fellowship in the mystical body of your son. Give us grace so to follow your blessed saints and all virtuous and godly living that we may come to those ineffable joys that you have prepared for those who truly love you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God in glory everlasting. And amen. That's it. Amen. That's that's what Halloween and All Saints is about. It's about the monsters getting footstooled. The monsters getting footstooled. So, Richie, you got anything else to add to that? We're coming in at an hour and a half. Anything else? Oh, gosh, I got something else I wanted to talk about. I forgot about it until well, now. Then let's get into it. What yeah. is it? All right, so we're going to go longer. We're going to go longer. The one thing we didn't talk about. What? It was literally the one thing we didn't talk about. So this is going to be for our people who are into folklore. <laughs> Um, so we talked about we talked about uh, trick or treating and mumming and you know the parallels between that and we talked about some of the carryovers. But the one thing we didn't call, talk about was was uh, jack o' lanterns. Yes. Okay. Well, this is a fun <clears throat> story. Maybe this will be a good point to end it on. Um, 
I used to carve uh, sigils into turnips and gourds, anything other than pumpkins. So it's, it's weird that pumpkins are a thing. Well, you're actually not far off because before they were pumpkins, it was turnips. Yeah. Okay. So the name pumpkin or the, the, for the name for pumpkins called jack-o'-lanterns. Those actually come from somewhere. They're based in folklore, which comes out of this kind of tradition that we've been talking about here. Um, so here's a, here's a folklore for you, an old story. Um, so there was this blacksmith named Jack, okay? And uh, he was a sneaky, backhanded man, okay? Not a good man. It just seems like there should be like a bunch of blacksmiths named Jack. Like that, that's just a very blacksmith name. Sounds that way. Kind of like Hallbrand. Um, yeah, kind of like Sauron. Okay. Um, so he was out gambling, and the devil came to him while he was gambling. And uh, he told him that, um, you know, he was, he was, uh, Jack asked him if he would turn into a, a coin for him in exchange for his soul. So the devil turned into a coin. And then he took the coin and he put it into his pocket. And what the devil didn't know was that he had a silver cross in there with the coin. So he couldn't transform back into, into himself. Well, since the devil couldn't, you know, he couldn't stay in Jack's pocket for the rest of eternity. So um, Jack made a deal with him. He said, 10 years, come back. 10 years, you can, you can take my soul. So devil said, all right. He turned back into himself and he left. 10 years later, he came back. And this time he found Jack out in a forest. So they get to talking. This is a classic West Virginia style story. <laughs> this is this is Shadow Appalachia. This, right is, here. this is Shadow Appalachia. Um, coming straight from Shadow Ireland. From Shadow um, Ireland. And so uh, he talks the devil into into getting into this tree. You know, he tells him, you know, if you get up into this tree for me, I'll let you take my soul. And so the devil devil does it. And while he's up there, Jack carves a, a cross in the tree. The devil can't come down. He can't pass the, pass the cross. So Jack makes a deal with him. He says to him, uh, you know, uh, I want you to let me live a, a natural life, and then, then you, you can have my soul. Well, since the devil couldn't sit in the tree for the rest of eternity, he, he told him that he would, so he comes down out of the tree. And then whenever Jack dies, he goes to heaven. God won't let him in. Because he was a backhanded, uh, evil man who dealt with the devil and wasn't in Christ. And so he goes to hell. Devil didn't want his soul either. He, he decided that, uh, you know, he was, he was even too evil for hell, basically. <laughs> this is a goofy story, but it's going to give meaning to the jack-o'-lantern. Um, and why it's called a jack-o'-lantern. Um, so... The devil sends him back to earth to wander for the rest of eternity as this kind of spirit. And he gives him a coal from hell to light the way. And so he puts it in the jack-o'-lantern, and that's how we get the jack-o'-lantern. And it's kind of this uh, cautionary tale, uh, goofy cautionary tale, of what happens whenever you're backhanded and evil. Right? That you're forced to, kind of like the Nephilim in some ways, to wander the earth aimlessly and uh, to, to not uh, spend eternity with God. And I know it's a goofy story, but that's actually where the that's name Jack, stuff. Yeah, that's yeah. where the name Jack-o'-lantern comes from. It comes from the story of uh, backhanded Jack, backhanded Jack. Yep. So, uh, 
so yeah and it has some interesting religious significance to it but uh that was what i was wanting to throw in there real quick so that's a freebie for everybody who's still yet listening so you got anything else to add in um got tons we could go into but i mean we're already at what an hour and a half yep an hour and a half um anything shadow appalachia related that we we forgot i can't think of anything not really we have the serpent mound expedition coming up next week yep so friday through sunday we are going to be in a flurry trying to get everything filmed out of this expedition a lot of sit down interviews and investigations and going to be hiking to the mound and going to logan and other places so yeah should be good. So hopefully uh, there will be another trailer come out of there will that, be. that yeah. content. And the other content that we've got on top of it from some uh, places in Point Pleasant that we were at and uh, some of the other stuff that we did in Logan, too. Yep. Um, hopefully there should be some more trailers coming out in the very, very near future. Yep. The first full trailer we're hoping to release before the, uh, before the holidays. So that will be a holiday release as the first sort of full trailer okay. but we have another teaser coming after this expedition okay also we want you guys to be a part of this and one of the ways that you can be a part of this is we're going to also crowdfund this as well we've not got a place for you to give yet but be on the lookout because in the upcoming weeks you will be able to give um you can give right now on patreon if you want to do that um you can just send us a message on there and say hey you know, I'm, I'm contributing this, or if you, you can, uh, if you, we can find other ways if you're wanting to contribute immediately. That's interesting you bring that up because I was wanting to talk about the sort of mission of the project anyway. Yeah, go for it. I mean, you have right now the pagans and the new age movement is dominating the paranormal field. Mm-hmm. And that's not at all how it used to be. I mean, they call pioneers in the field like Ed and Lorraine Warren the foundational forces for paranormal research for for a reason it was based on christian demonology like christians had the narrative the worldview for the paranormal for so long and the new age movement this rise in paganism has subverted that and taken that into their authority Kind of like halloween absolutely yeah and so this project all these paranormal related projects the podcast the docuseries any of it is to counter that movement that movement of the pagans of the new age of the darkness it's to the church really pull its head out of the sand and not to give any more ground to take ground back yeah to uh to give to christ what belongs to him and to live in reality that and that's the supernatural worldview that we find in the scriptures and we've said it from the beginning that's the reason why the new age took off like it did it met no resistance from the church there's a void there was a void to be filled, and the church and was really backward about that. They didn't have the worldview, especially the Protestant church, yeah. didn't have the worldview, the categories to counter what was on the horizon. Who was the the cardinal who gave uh, Ed Warren? Oh wow, that that's some, that was an awesome point I found today. Watch rewatching that documentary. It uh, when Ed and Lorraine Warren were in the the throes of legal battles, trying to make uh, demonic possession an actual legal defense. One of the the cardinal that stood up to uh, ratify their their uh, exorcisms and to grant their exorcisms was Joseph Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict. Pope Benedict. Yeah. So that's interesting. Some interesting stuff right there. Yeah, he's wrote some interesting things on the liturgy. He has. Yep. So, um, 
All right. Well, so um, yeah, this is your chance to be able to stand in the gap with us and to be able to counter these pa- pagan projects and yeah. to really take back this narrative and to combat the, the narrative that's out there now. That's yeah. right. To put forth the Christian worldview and to make sense of things that are happening in the world right now that unfortunately are not being looked at from the correct perspective. And so you get a part, uh, you get a, a place to participate in that. And Absolutely. so if you want to contribute, um, hopefully here soon, we'll have a way for you to do that on the sword and staff website for now, just use Patreon. Um, and if you're wanting to come on and to invest big, to make this happen, um, we hope that there are people out there who would do that. Um, we will, we will make a way for you to, for that to be possible as well. And, um, you know, maybe there'll be some awesome perks coming out for some of those people. Absolutely. Lots of way to partner and help us with this project and future projects. So, yeah. So we hope you guys are looking forward to that. We hope you enjoyed today's uh, edition on Halloween. Hopefully it expanded on the repertoire of things that we've already uh, put out there. And uh, so if you want more information, if you want more content, head on over to our Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash Sword and Staff Order. For just $5 a month, you can get the Sword and Staff uncut. Um, You get exclusive content that nobody else gets. You get swag. I'm looking at swag. I was going to say, I am in love with the box over there. I'm looking at a box of swag that we're going to be sending out to patrons. Hopefully... Hopefully, by the beginning of next week, most likely, I still yet need to get addresses. So if you're listening and if you're a patron, I need your address. You can send it to me in a private message on Patreon. Um, If you would do that, please do that. I don't want to hunt you down (laughs) to get your address. Um, I'm going to probably send messages out to everybody who are patrons. I was going to say we'll get the list. Yeah, we'll get. uh, Yeah, I'll go on to Patreon and send messages to everybody who are patrons. That way I can get your address. But we have swag coming your way. Right, and everybody's getting a copy of the Mothman prophecies for Halloween. So, and we've had people reach out and wanting uh, ways to help and to participate and to help with this research and things like. Well, this is how you do it. Yep, yep. Um, your contributions help us to be able to do the things that we we do. Um, your contributions have helped us to invest in this podcast. I mean, we're sitting here right now with. Um, audio screens, audio shields in front of us, which is a new addition. This is the first time we've ever used them. Um, and that's made possible partly by patrons. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, it gives, gives uh, funding to be able to be freed up to, to dedicate to stuff like that. And so um, all the improvements that we were making and all the stuff that we're working on is powered by you guys and yep. funded. I by mean, these, these projects, they take serious time, they money, do. resources, and, we're they willing do. to put in the work and we need people yep. to come alongside us and yep. help us get it out there. Yep. So uh, there will be incentives for you if you do that. So, uh, Richie, if you don't have anything else, though, we'll go ahead and sign off. No, I'm good. All right. <clears> so <throat> we'll be back next week with another collaboration with Tony Merkel from The Confessionals. From what I understand, we will be profiling high strangeness and talking about high strangeness in general. We talked about cryptids. We're going to be talking about other stuff with Tony. Uh, perhaps we'll get into some of our experiences that we've had. Um, Richie's had experiences. Oh, we've, we've visited some interesting places. Tony's visited some interesting places. So hopefully that turns out to be a fun conversation. Absolutely. We're, we're both talkers. Tony's a talker, so I expect it to be interesting. So, All right, guys. We hope we, you enjoyed this week's edition of the Sword and Staff. We'll see you next week. See you then. See you.